there would be a lot of people, I imagine, that would agree with me that this passage in the middle of Romans 3 is the heart of the gospel. And if you were to understand this passage, I believe you would understand the gospel. And if you understand the gospel, I believe you would understand the Bible because the Bible is centered on the gospel. So the, the whole chapter uh, is part of an argument that Paul starts from the beginning that there isn't a single person living or has ever lived or will ever live that on their own is acceptable before God. And that is an, that's an indictment that uh, infuriates people, the idea that we are not good enough, that nothing you can do, that you can't hold your tongue just right enough for God to accept you, that in yourself you need a Savior, and that a Savior was given. And so he paints that picture, that black picture of every single race, every single type of person, regardless of their sophistication or their education or their religion or their family, that all are equal before God and already condemned, then the gospel comes. And it starts in, in verse 21, and I'd like to read through 27. And if you will pray that I can get quickly to 25, I would love to spend most of my time there. This is Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. Of what law? Works? Nay, but the law of faith. So this passage starts very strangely. It starts with the, with the idea of, but now. You start something, but now, and immediately our mind goes back to saying, oh, there must have been something true of you, and now there's something new in your life, something that's true of you now. So you could, you could separate a man's life but, by the words, but now. You could separate the scriptures by the words, but now. That there was a, a way that God communicated at one time or a way that God displayed something that was true about him that doesn't stop being true, but that the way he describes it or the way he communicates it, or the way he makes it true to us is different now. And so we see that the but now has to do with the righteousness of God. When you talk in theology, it's often very confusing because words that you only use in reference to God will obviously get muddled and confused because we don't use them in other contexts. And since most people never speak about God and never think about theology, that it is always based upon some kind of a miscommunication, something you picked up as a child or something you read on a meme somewhere. Somehow your theology always filtering in through a thousand different windows and not realizing exactly what it says because the word righteousness refers to God. 
but yet we have words like right or upright that has to do with righteousness. So there is something that deals with us here that it's not just God. But this says that the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So if you were to think of righteousness, righteousness, it's being like God. If you're righteous, you are like God. And if you were to think of the righteousness of God, then you would have to think of the idea of righteousness of God has to deal with the, it's a divine attribute in which God always is in every way consistent with his own character. Which is kind of funny when you sit back and go, that means God always acts like God, which somehow just goes in a circle. But that is a profound statement that God is perfectly consistent in his character. I'm not consistent in my character at all. I'm very consistently inconsistent. The things that I would love to be true of me or the values that I hold, I always find myself going one way or the other or one intense way or one of the other ways. I had a kid who writes me notes on the bottom of his paper and he was trying to be funny, I think, but he said, he said, um, brain teaser, Let's imagine there was a God who could do anything. What could that God not do? And I think he was trying to be funny. But on the bottom of his paper, I said, well, as far as I understand God, God is always consistent to God's character, which makes him righteous. And I'm never consistent with my character, which makes me unrighteous. And that that really makes me think that the word righteous is closer to the idea of what you learned in geometry class If there was a triangle with a certain size or a certain length and a certain angles and all the angles were exactly some some shape and you had another triangle that was exactly congruent to that triangle, you could overlay that triangle on top and the first triangle would disappear completely. It would match flawlessly. That's righteousness. God always does things perfectly consistent with himself. And it says that, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Which begs the question, you've got this idea that there must have been a time that God's righteousness was displayed to the world through his law. And if you look at the law of God, it does perfectly overlay God. You could take God's law and perfectly overlay God Almighty himself. And it would flawlessly, perfectly fit. So if you were, for instance, like Moses, when he wrote, this is is Deuteronomy 6, and it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. You see, if we could keep the law, we would be righteous. We would be exactly like God if we were to do exactly like God we would, our doing in our being would be the same. It would be our righteousness if we could do it. So it was totally necessary that God give his law because to be righteous as God is righteous, he doesn't just stay consistent with his character, but he promotes his character. He, uh, he publishes his character. He, uh, procl- he proclaims and applauds his character. And he insists that all of his creatures share his character. You can't have a righteous father of unrighteous children. 
we must be like him. And so it is not unrighteous at all for him to give law that is to be expected to be obeyed and then penalty for that law. That's part of his righteousness. It's part of who he is. Now, as this says, without the law being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that means that the entire Bible is giving this, this message, that God is righteous, and not just righteous as an adjective, but he's righteousness himself. That idea of he's perfectly perfect, and he, is, he promotes that. He promotes his character. But do you see, he's not only just righteous. It takes the Bible to reveal God. You can look out the window and see that God is powerful. You can look out the window and see that God is creative. But you cannot look out the window and see that God is righteous and has loving kindness pouring out of his heart. This is Jeremiah chapter 9. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I'm the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, says the Lord. So he's perfectly consistent with himself. He's righteous. And he's in judgment. He insists upon these same character traits in his creatures as himself. But something is true of God more than that. That he has loving kindness in his heart. He is extending that loving kindness. It bubbles over him continuously to us. And that is the problem that mankind has. To have a God who is holy, who is omnipotent and holy, and we are not holy, is our worst problem. That is our worst terrifying problem. But the kindness of the Lord is our hope. And they're both true. They're both perfectly true at the same time. So you have this righteousness now that is apart from the law that not based upon my performance, not based upon what I've done or what I hope to do or what I'm getting better at or what I can fake you into believing. God is not accepting me on the basis of me pretending to be like him but not like him. He has extended to me what he needs because if he is righteous and he demands righteousness of me, then he as Savior, he's the only Savior, extends that righteousness to me. So when, God, when, when Paul starts his gospel in the darkest passage, he's painted the darkest picture of mankind. That there is no one right, no one with any fear of God before their eyes. They all go after blood. And it does not matter. It's all of us. And then he says, but now there's a change. Something is new. And it's not something new about God being more righteous than he used to be or less righteous than he used to be. It is how he expresses that righteousness. Because there is a righteousness of God that has nothing to do with our obedience or our, or our, our merits. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who came on Christmas to this world and lived righteously. He lived righteously. If we were just forgiven, we would have nothing to commend ourselves before God. If all of your sins were gone and there was no offense whatsoever, not a shred of offense before a holy, holy, holy God, God would not accept you. There is nothing in you but zero. You would have had no offense and nothing more. You would have been like a chair or a table, not offending God, but not pleasing God at all. 
But this says, a righteousness of God, having nothing to do with my performance, is manifested. Manifested means smacked in the face with your hand, slapped along the face. That there is something so true about God's righteousness that is presented in the life of the Lord Jesus. That it, that it, is, it stares you down and makes you deal with it. It forces your hand so that you deal with the fact that God has shown himself to be righteous through his son. And this has been witnessed by the law and the prophets. Every passage pointing to Jesus, every passage showing some glint or some, some sparkle that shows who Jesus was and is. So when Moses said, if we were to be righteous, we could, we could obey the law, it would be our righteousness. That is no gospel. That would not be a gospel message. The gospel means good news. There's no good news. And you be exactly like God and you will be righteous and accepted by God. The good news is that Jesus lived in your place righteously and was, was killed in your place. So there is no offense, but there's also active, real, real righteousness that comes to us. That's good news. That'll get my attention. That will change your life. So, there, so you're going to see that the gospel itself is a revelation of God's righteousness. He is righteous, and just the gospel shows his righteousness. Do you see? And the witness of the prophets and the, and the Psalms and the, and the Torah, all of it pointed to Jesus. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and said, If you believe Moses, you believe me. But if you don't believe his writings, how can you believe my words? All of it pointed Everything pointed flawlessly to Christ. So since Jesus already died, there is a righteousness in those of us who've trusted him. And it has nothing to do with us, so there's no glory to us. Where's boasting then? It's excluded. We're just, we just enjoy. There's something in a believer that simply enjoys his Savior. When Christians come together, in obligation, it is a thrill for us to come together. We pant for it. We hate it when we're not together. We love to exalt his son. We glorify God, our Father, through making much of our Savior, who is our righteousness. Because Jeremiah, when he gave his prophecy, as remember, the law and the prophets all point to Christ. This is what Jeremiah said. In those days and at that time, I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith shall she shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. Did you catch that God is not called the Lord our righteousness? Jesus, the branch, is not called the Lord our righteousness. His people are called the Lord our righteousness. That's astonishing that Jesus is our righteousness and we are called our righteousness. We are called Jesus is our righteousness. That's hallelujah. That is absolutely freedom. And it comes because the gospel says a righteousness from God has appeared apart from the law being witnessed by the prophets. Even the righteousness, this is verse 22, of God, which is by faith, 
of Jesus Christ and upon all them, unto all and upon all them that believe. The righteousness is the same righteousness that, that, that when Abraham believed God and it was credited to the righteousness, it's the same. To take God at his word and say, I believe that nothing is impossible for you. Nothing is impossible. Even the salvation of my soul is not impossible. It took the death of your son, staggering in, its, in its, what it means. But nothing is impossible. God can do all things, even save us. So it says at the end of Romans, as Paul is concluding this argument, he says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. The end of the law. So when you have Christ, strangely enough, everyone who is so concerned about the law, you, you do overlap with the law flawlessly. And since the law is an overlap of God's character flawlessly, you have to say that is true of you. Though you are a sinner right now, though you sinned even this moment, before God you are as clean as He is. And He will take you to glory. And, and heaven will not be polluted when you get there because He is His righteousness. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is to us those things that we need. We need to be holy. We need to be like God. We need to be loving God. We need to have our, our groggy minds woken up and alerted and changed and, and recreated. And Jesus is these things to us. Jesus is not just a means to it. He's not a therapist to our betterment. He is what God requires of us. And he has given it to us by faith of Jesus Christ unto all. You preach to all. You preach to every dead, glazed over eye. You preach to every dead, zombie person in this world. You preach to the foul, and you preach to the smug, and you preach to the self-righteous. You preach to the church, and you preach to the world, and it does not matter. But it says, unto all, but, it says, upon all them that believe. To those who believe, the righteousness of God is given. Only those who believe, who by faith of, of Jesus Christ, believes. Then it says at the end, for there is no difference. The NASB says distinction. There's no distinction at all. You can't tell one from another the, the different degrees of sin or the different types of sin. The, the way, the, way of, this, of, of the world is wide, the path is wide. You can be foul in different ways. You can be unacceptable to God in countless ways. You can be unacceptable in your, in your perfect obedience to the law, if you think that's what it is. Or you can be, you can be just the most profligate, uh, extreme member of whatever group that you want to think of as a sinner. The, the, the path is wide. So when you say that, that all, there's no distinction, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You have to be more righteous than, than the Pharisees in order to get in. It does not, mat not matter if you're not, you're not included. It's those who have faith in Jesus Christ, and then there is no difference. 
because all have sinned. You think of that as, as such a horrible, scary verse, but it gives great comfort to a believer. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't know why that's terrifying and comforting, because it means that since God has loving kindness in his heart that is bursting over and he intends to dwell with man, that is his intent. I do not know the motivation of God's heart. There's no way that I could say. There's nothing given except that he has loved the world so much that he sent his son. That that is true is all that we know. And that the loving kindness of God has intended to save sinners. And that he is the Savior. So when it says all have sinned, I say I have sinned. If all have sinned, then Brian has sinned. And I have come short of God's glory. I do not give him the weight that he deserves. I do not say that he is to be worshipped, worth-shipped, that he has value. I treat him as though he doesn't have value. I always have something else in my mind, something else in my eyes. I do not treat him as though that he has great glory, Shekinah, shining glory that comes out of him. I, I, I don't. I forget. I go sleepy. I go sluggish. I have come short of the glory of God, and all of us have. All have sinned is a comfort to me, because for me to put my faith in Christ means that I'm not thinking that, that I'll put my faith in Christ, but it really is whether I have a quiet time, or it really is what's in my mind or in my mouth. That somehow I'm believing two different things. I believe that God really does give me goody points at the same time that I'm claiming that all is in Jesus Christ. No, the gospel to a believer is a, is a soft pillow, but it is also a hard hammer. And it drives you like a rod and a staff continuously to the gospel. You preach to yourself continuously to the gospel that it is Christ, not my merits. It is Christ, not my obedience. It's Christ, not my record. It's not our performance. All have come short of the glory of God, all of us. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So when it says justified, that means God just points at you and says you're righteous. And the funny thing is, is that he has to do that righteously. He has to be righteous while looking at you and claiming that you are righteous. He cannot be making it up. He cannot be against himself. He has to be flawlessly fair. He's perfectly righteous within himself, which means he doesn't stop being just. He looks at you, and because Christ died in your place and lived in your place, he looks at you with all righteousness and says, justified. Totally not just not guilty. Not just no punishment, but perfectly acceptable. And it says he does it freely by his grace. And when you stare at something to, to try to truly understand it, like I could have read that a thousand times and go justified freely by his grace and just gone on. And then I stopped and thought, well, that means the same thing. Freely by his grace means freely, freely, or by his grace, by his grace. So the Bible doesn't use words that way. Like you, it means everything means something. So I looked up the word freely, and I found a verse that uses the exact same word 
Let me read it to you. You pick the word freely. This is in John 15. But this comes to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. What word means freely? Without a cause. (laughs) He justified us by his grace with no cause. There was no cause in him to do it. It wasn't because we did something. It's not because we wanted something. It's not because we loved him. It's not because we, we wanted him to do something for us. For no reason at all, he, through his grace only, did something so momentous to us that will change the trajectory of our life for eternity. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption The only word that we ever use redemption is when you're going to a pawn shop. There is no other time that you use the word redemption other than in church. To redeem something means you get a ticket, you give them something, you pay the fee, which is really just interest, and you give them a time and say, I will be back for for my pocket watch. Within this two weeks, do not sell my pocket watch and I'll buy it back. And you buy it back or not. And if you buy it back, that's redemption. So Hosea came and saw Gomer naked on a, on a block, his own wife, and he paid for her again. He bought her again. But Hosea did not buy Gomer so that he could sell her again. He wasn't part of the trade. He bought her that she would never be sold again. A museum doesn't buy a painting so that it can be the next vendor to sell the painting. A museum buys a painting so that it can take it off the market so that forever that painting will be away from the market so that anybody can look at it. That's what God does. He redeemed you through Christ's blood that you might be his forever, not to be put back on the slave block that is in Christ Jesus. So we get to 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. I'd say one of the most important passages in terms of saving men over the centuries, this strange verse that has vocabulary that nobody knows. Now, many Bibles, it depends on what the way a translator would work. If you come to a word so hard as like propitiation, you could either just use the word propitiation and say, well, you should look it up. There's dictionaries in this world. Or... They might say, nobody knows what that means. Let's, in the verse itself, kind of tell them what that is so that they can read it and then they don't have, because they were not going to go to the dictionary anyway. When I went to the dictionary, merriamrobster.com, I was delighted to find that the word propitiation is in the top 1% of looked up words. Top 1%. I glorified God. I said, praise the Lord. There are countless multitudes of people who, for whatever reason, God has said, this is important. Know what it means. It may be the most important word in your life. John Bunyan, in his diary, said, it wasn't until I got to to Romans 3.25 that the light of heaven dawned on my soul and I knew that I was really forgiven, that God had nothing against me but love. Nothing at all. I was only his. 
William Cowper, who wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flood should lose all their guilty stains. He struggled with depression. There's lots of Christians that struggle with depression. But he was very low. And he was a brilliant poet. And he lived with a doctor at his house, and the doctor was a godly man, and the doctor just said, turn to the Lord, dump this on the Lord, He's ho- he can hold it, he can carry you. And in his diary, he said he had a Bible at a window, at a, there was a chair and a table and a Bible, and he sat over and over, and he would beg God, oh, please give me relief, give me release, let, let me find something in your word that will make me happy. And he said he was reading Romans 3.25. And when he read that God set him forth to be a propitiation, he said, I never again was in despair. You may be low. You may be tricked. You may be fumbled. You may be, you may be clumsy in your brain. But you will never despair when you know that God himself made Jesus our Savior to be the propitiation. So it is worth us knowing what it is. Propitiation, if you were to look at it, say, at a dictionary. So if you go to Oxford English Dictionary, it says to win or regain the favor of someone. Okay, so it gives you the connotation that you lost it. There was something lost that needs to be regained. Some kind of a relationship that's important to you that needs to be, re- to, to be regained. Okay, you're, walk with your adversary while you're still on the way. Because if he gets all the way to the court, he will put you in prison until you pay the last penny. There must be a relationship renewed. There must be something brought to where you're reestablished with favor. So to be propitious means to be favorably disposed. Someone looks at you and they don't hate your guts. They look at you and they smile and they're not being a fraud. They truly are glad to see you. That's propitious. But propitious is okay if you're a stranger. Propitious is okay if you're a very slight acquaintance with someone. Oh, that, boy, that boy's never, never ever did anything to me. He's never said anything to me. He's never violated me. He's never stolen from me. He's never lied to me. He's never been a criminal. He's never, been a, he's never harmed my family. But do it once and have someone smile at you. And you, for the rest of your life, you're sure that they're being a fraud. But if God smiles at you, since God cannot be a fraud, it is because he's favorably disposed to you. And so Webster's Dictionary adds this. It's a, a sacrifice that appeases a deity. Now, the word appease a deity gives you the idea of throwing a pork chop at a wolf that's about to eat you just so that you can run. You appease him, calm him down. Okay? So there is something, this idea that, that, that there is an angry God and that you're pacifying an angry God. This is the, this is the old concept that there must have been a God and that he's angry and I must do something. And so this is the world. This is every human in the world knows that I have to do something. I must do something. I'm not right with God. I'm not right with God. I'm not right with God. Your conscience screams that in your ears. No matter what you think or what you claim to others, I'm not right with God. I must be right with God. I must do something. 
I must give something. I must write a check. I must serve somehow. I must do something I don't want to do or be nice to someone I don't want to be nice to or somehow act a certain way so that God will look at me and say, ah, okay, I'm appeased. Okay, if they went to that much trouble that they did call their mother, okay, it's all right. Do you see? So if God is favorably disposed towards something, then he must have been propitiated. Something had to happen in order for God's wrath to be turned away from us and his face in love to be pointing to us in kindness. And that's propitiation. So when a person comes to God in asking mercy, when a person is saved, what they're do, they're saved from the promise of the wrath of God towards us. Because if God is righteous and his law is righteous, then his judgments are righteous. And if his judgments are that all sinners will die, that's righteous. That means that all of us are under wrath. And that's why Paul only has five verses here with such powerful force that it can change your life. But it took three chapters for him to set the stage that all of us are under God's condemnation already. It's a done deal already. You're not going to be condemned. You already are condemned. You've just not been dragged off to your punishment. That's the only difference. So if the certain wrath can be turned away from us, then only hope that this, this is our only hope. It's our, it's our only, it's our greatest need. So remember, it's part of his holiness. It's, it stems from his holiness. This is, and when he gives the law, for instance, in, in Exodus, there's an entire chapter in chapter 28, sorry, of Deuteronomy, of here's the blessings of if you, if you do as I say, here's the blessings you can expect. And then there's an entire chapter in 29. If you don't do what I say, this is what I'll expect. You will expect every kind of curse because it's, it's a natural outflow of God's heart. It's not him being cranky. It's not being cranky. People don't like to read the Old Testament. They don't like to read the prophets because God's always in a bad mood. This is Nahum. God is jealous. The Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. That's part of who God is. To have a wrathless God is to have a monkey. It's to have a, it's to have a clown. You know that you've truly been harmed. Not something little, something big. Or your family has truly been harmed. Un, never to be repaired. And if there is not a God that will exercise judgment, then there is not a God. God is not right or good if he doesn't deal with that in fury. And he's infinite in dignity. That's why your punishment will be infinite in duration. Because you will never pay the interest on the offense before a holy God. Nothing at all. So if you see the word propitiation... It only occurs one other time in the Bible. This is the word propitiation. Of course, it's hidden. You find it. Okay? This is Hebrews chapter 9. He's talking about the furniture of the tabernacle, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round with gold, wherein is the golden pot of manna and Aaron's rud that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, which cannot now speak particularly. Where, where is propitiation? Mercy seat. Oh, the mercy seat was a lid. It was a cover. 
It was a gold lid on a box. And this passage said there were certain things in it. There was the tables of the, of the Ten Commandments in stone with God's finger. There was a golden pot of manna, the bread of heaven that God supplied his people with during their wilderness journeys. And there was the staff of Aaron the priest that was an almond stick that budded, blossomed, and produced fruit. Where God said, I get to pick who the priest is. You all think you're fine? I get to pick. So in this box, there was a lid and a covering. Now remember, it wasn't the first Ten Commandments, was it? Moses came down the mountain on that first day after everyone said, we will obey God forever. Our families forever will obey. And the first day, Moses is coming down the hill, and he looks, and the people are all dancing naked around an idol. And in his fury and his frustration, he shatters the law. It was literally broken. The covenant was broken on the first day when it was made with men. So there was a second one carved with God's finger. And it was put in this box. This unbroken law was put in this box. And this is from Exodus 25. You shall put the mercy seat above the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, and between the two cherubims which are on the ark of the testimony of all the things I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. See, God dwelt in Shekinah glory, okay? The glory of radiance, the glory of the transfiguration, the glory that made Moses' face shine. And it, it hovered above the lid of this box, continuously looking at his law. And it didn't just stay in the tabernacle. There was no light in that part of the tabernacle. That room only had the ark in it, and it never needed light because God was in that dwelling place. And it came up above the tent, and it went straight up into the sky. And during the day, it was a whirling cloud of a white brightness. And at night, it was flaming column of fire. And it went all the way to heaven. The aliens flying around would say, what on earth is that? It was like shining off into wherever heaven is. And it continuously looked with penetrating vision at that unbroken law that represented God's righteousness and commands us to, re to do it fully. And the mercy seat was the cover between it. And he said, if you want to meet with me, I'll meet with you one place. I'll meet with you at the lid of that box. And once a year, a goat was killed. And after his own sacrifice for his own sin, the high priest, one person in one day in a year, came and put blood on the top of that lid. So as the Shekinah glory stared beamingly, penetratingly into his law, he looked through the atonement. So the atonement has the idea of a covering. The lid was the atonement. So when you look up this word in the Hebraic dictionary, the, the Jew dictionary, he didn't even say propitiation. I mean, I think propitiation is pretty big already. The Jewish dictionary called it the propitiatory the place upon which the propitiation is offered, the propitiation that allowed God to turn his wrath away from you 
and be favorably disposed towards you. In, you see that the cover was the, the propitiation and the offering was the propitiation. Do you see? So you have the death of this animal, which represented the penalty of breaking that law. And you have that it was a spotless animal. So this is Christ. Christ is the propitiation. This says, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation. God set Jesus Christ, his son, to be the propitiation. That place of offering and the offering. And the priest that offered the offering. So if you were to take this word propitiation, and there's only one other way to do it, and that's as a verb, to make a propitiation. There are two passages in the Bible that says to make a propitiation. The first is in that same passage in, in uh, Hebrews that says Jesus offered himself to God. That Jesus, the offerer, offered upon his own altar, he was the altar and the sacrifice to God. That's to make propitiation. The second one is in Luke 18. Luke 18, Jesus is giving a parable about two men who came to the temple to pray. And you had a Pharisee who was self-righteous and was so glad that he was better than everybody else. And you had a tax collector who couldn't look above his shoes. And this is what it said, And the publican standing far off would not so much as lift his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the word to make propitiation. Be merciful. Do you see? God is not just judgment. He's not just righteousness. He's overflowing with loving kindness forever towards his people. And because of that, he wants to show mercy. And he showed mercy by making his son to be the propitiation so that his wrath, which is our desert, is directed away from us and his favor and loving kindness is directed towards us. Jesus is not like Wonder Woman blinking off with her bracelets. God is like zapping. He's zapping you because you're bad. And Jesus is like, oh no, you're not going to do that. It doesn't work that way at all. Jesus is a shield who did not deflect God's wrath at all. He absorbed God's wrath. He took God's wrath. He took every ounce of it. He drank it down to the dregs. He was in misery and bleeding out of his pores. And he said, oh, please remove this cup from me. It was God's wrath in that cup. And he drank it to the bottom. He drank it all. He exhausted it. There is a nuclear explosion furious towards you. And there is no hope. It will leave nothing but a shadow. You will be vaporized in perpetuity forever. But he stood in front of you and he took it himself. He deflected by absorbing his wrath. For three hours he, stood, he hung in agony on that cross and every ounce of God's wrath that will be an eternity upon every unrepentant sinner was put upon Christ and put upon Christ and put upon Christ and Christ was, was just taking it. And then the sun goes out. And he stands there and now it's gone. It's over. And the ground starts shaking and the sun disappears and the stars disappear. And he's crying out with the Psalm 22 and he said, 
He said, the bulls are after me. And there's never been a time any of our fathers ever pointed their face to you and you were gone. You were always there, but I'm pouring my life out and I don't see you're gone. You're, you're, you're gone. Where are you? They've pierced me. They, they're tormenting me. They're mocking me. Where are you? And God rejected him. After he absorbed all of that wrath, he then was rejected for you, for me. He deflected, he turned away God's wrath. The long was satisfied on that mercy seat. Jesus, be all praise. So Jesus was the propitiation. God sent him to be the propitiation. And Jesus is man's propitiation when he puts his faith in him. Because he set him to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. For a simple person to look with faith into the blood, the efficacious blood of Jesus, means life. Life now, life forever. And we truly can worship We can see the quality of God and His worth, His glory, His weight, and praise God by making great, great praise of our Savior and enjoying Him. Not hiding behind Him with no thought of Him, but knowing who He is and loving Him because all grace is towards us now. We are not under under probation. We're only loved by God, actively forever. Amen.